their word, the, the sofer is allowed to scrape the ink off with a sharp instrument and rewrite it. However, if he makes a mistake while he's writing the holy name of God, the yod heh vav -Heh, the entire sheet of the scroll must be cut out of the scroll and discarded, and he has to start over on that sheet and sew that back into the scroll. So there is no room for error whatsoever. As I said earlier, the Torah we use today in our synagogue is written exactly the same way the Torah was written the very first time by Moshe 3,500 years ago. We know this because we find fragments of the scrolls, um, the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea scrolls. When those are compared to modern scrolls, there's no differences. The Torah is made of many sheets of parchment that are all sewn together to make one very long scroll. This parchment is specially prepared as is the ink and the, um, uh, and the quill. It's written by hand, obviously. We try not to touch the scroll with our bare hands, so we use a special pointer stick called a yad, which means hand. If you've not seen it up close, it looks like an arm from the elbow out with a pointer so that when we're reading from the scroll, we can follow along. There, we have a set of sterling silver finals. Um, these are the crowns, the rimanim. Uh, rimanim comes from the Hebrew word for pomegranate, and it's used to decorate the top ends of the rollers. Many rimanim have bells on them, as do ours, and this reminds us of the bells on the hem of the holy blue vestments of the high priest. A sterling silver, silver Torah breastplate, or hoshen, is hung around the Torah rollers or staves. Those, the staves are actually called etzi kaim, trees of life. Torah scrolls are covered in an embroidered velvet cover called a mantle. These can be any color. Um, you see red and green and gold ones. But the most common is dark blue like ours. On the high holy days, the Torah scroll is covered in a white mantle. Now if you think about it, this is reminiscent of the high priest changing out of the blue vestments into the white vestments on Yom Kippur. Following the Torah service, the Torah scroll is raised. This is called Hagba. When we actually read from the scroll, you'll notice many of us will pick the scroll up while it's open and turn it around backwards so that you can see the writing. Um, our scroll is uh, much larger than the average scroll, being a two-foot scroll, so it's actually hard to get three full columns open and out. So, um, but you're supposed to have three full columns visible to the congregation. So when we say this is the this is the Torah of that, um, and this is the Torah that God gave to Moses through Moses' hand, that you're actually seeing it. And this dressing and undressing that we do of the scroll, where we put the remaining we on, and then we lay it down, and we take it off, or we're we're uh, going to read it, so we take the remaining off, we take the the, the breastplate off, we take the mantle off, and take the belt off it. 
that whole process is called Galiah. So we have a great deal. There's, there's lots that go into it. All the things have a name, um, and this is a, this is a standard tradition that happens in all synagogues around the world with little differences. A Sephardic scroll is on a single stav and uh, is, is a little bit different configuration instead of two. So I want to look at the scriptural basis for our Torah readings um, because this is not just something we do, this is something we're commanded to do. So turn with me to Devarim or Deuteronomy 31 verse 9 on page 233. Devarim or Deuteronomy 31, 9, on page 233. Starting in verse 9, it says, Then Moshe wrote down this Torah and gave it to the Kohanim the descendants of Levi who carry the ark with the covenant of Adonai and to all the leaders of Israel. Moshe gave them these orders. At the end of every seven years, during the festival of Sukkot in the year of Shemitah, when all Israel have come to appear in the presence of Adonai at the place he will choose, you are to read this Torah before all Israel so that they can hear it. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the little ones, and the foreigners you have in your towns so that they can hear, learn, fear Adonai your God, and take care to obey all the words of this Torah so that the children who have not known can hear and learn to fear Adonai your God for as long as you live in the land you are crossing the Yarden to possess." So the Torah itself dictates reading it to the assembly every seven years during the Shemitah year. Now, obviously, we follow a yearly Torah cycle. This is something that came on uh, later uh, during the first and second temple eras. Now, we follow the yearly cycle, but there's also a less common three-year cycle, if you've heard of that. The, in ancient Israel, the three-year or triennial cycle was actually more common. After the destruction of the second temple, we began to see a split in the practices of the nation. Two different schools of thought and practice began to develop. One centered around those who remained in Jerusalem and the exiles in Babylonia. Um, this, isn't the, this isn't the Babylonian exile from Jeremiah and such. That was about 1,100 years before. This is after the destruction of the second temple by the Romans. Um, many of the, uh, many people from Jerusalem fled, and they fled east to Babylonia to get out of Roman territory. This is why we have the Jerusalem Talmud, which was written in about 350 AD, and the Babylonian Talmud, which was written about 500 AD. So by the year 500, the people around Jerusalem were following this triennial cycle of reading the Torah every three, going through it and taking three years to go through it, and the people in Babylon were following the annual cycle as we're familiar with today. Uh, the triennial cycle, it, the, the partiote 
were divided into 141 or 154 or 167 partiote, as opposed to our 54, depending on the exact tradition of that community. So by around the Middle Ages, the annual cycle of 54 partiote and going through it in one year had become the norm. Um, but as late as 1170 AD, there were still some congregations in Egypt that were still following this three-year cycle. So the one-year cycle has been a standard for about the last 900 years or so. Um, however, starting in 1920 in America, some conservative, reformed, and reconstructionist congregations have begun attempting to revive the three-year cycle. Again, neither one is right or wrong. The Torah, is, we're commanded to read it every seven years, so reading through it um, annually or triannually is uh, just working on the foundations of our faith. So neither one of those is necessarily right or wrong. So as you're familiar, after the Torah reading, we have the Haftorah reading. Um, this is generally a selection that shares a theme with the Torah portion or is a special holiday selection. Um, the, the, the word haftarah is how it's, it's pronounced, actually means conclusion. So it's, a, it, it's not half Torah as in half the Torah. That's what I thought for many years. It's haftarah. Um, the reasons that specific selections were chosen has been lost to history. Nobody really knows why each Haftorah portion was assigned to the Torah portions. The leading theory is that during the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes during the Book of Maccabees, you know, the Hanukkah story, Torah study was forbidden. And so sections of the prophets, which were not forbidden, were substituted and these carried the same themes as the Torah portion. So as the people would study a section from the prophets, the same theme would be present as the, that, we, that Torah portion. And so they would kind of still be studying the Torah even though it was forbidden. So next week, we're gonna be celebrating our Simcha Torah. This is the joy of the Torah. Now, if you've not participated before, this is one of the most festive celebrations we have here in the sanctuary. We festively parade the Torah around the sanctuary seven times. Um, there's music, people are dancing. We usually end with a Havanagila around the Torah scroll. We have you know, noisemakers and bells and, and stuff like that. Um, the, in, we, it, it's a great time of celebration. The, the seven laps that we do around the uh, sanctuary is actually called hakafot, which just means circling. So there's a lot, we do a lot that centers around our scroll. And with all this reverence and ceremony, dressing it, parading it, lifting it. Um, the Torah service is often mistook for idolatry. 
I, I know that we've had visitors come in and see what we're doing, and they hearken back to um, phrases about not decorating a tree with silver and gold and lifting it up, and they think, look at them, they're doing idolatry. Now, this is very different. The Torah scroll is not alive. It is not a god. We're not worshiping it. We're honoring it, and that is a difference. But that does raise the question, why do we do all this? Why do we have ceremonies just around the scroll? Why do we have an entire service dedicated to parading the scroll around and rolling it back to the beginning and celebrating it? Why do we do that? Now let's go beyond the simple answer of we're honoring the word of God. This is true. But there are a hundred Bibles out in your pews right now. We don't do that for any of them. There have been an estimated five billion copies of the Bible printed. And I'm sure many of them ended up in a landfill or burned in some protest or forgotten in the bottom drawer of a, a, a hotel nightstand. So why is this scroll so special? Why do we have all these laws and rituals and garments for the Torah? We protect it. We lift it up. Why do we do all this? Well, I have two answers for you this morning. The first is short and to the point. This, this English Bible right here, our complete Jewish Bible, uh, translated by David H. Stern, this is not the divinely inspired word of God. Now, that might be shocking to some people, but this is not. This scroll in our ark here is the divinely inspired word of God. Every detail of it, down to the letter, down to the size and spacing of the letters, was given by God to Moshe. There's a difference there. This English Bible is a translator's interpretation of the divinely inspired word of God. Now, we like the complete Jewish Bible. We have hundreds of them. We enjoy it a great deal, and it's very useful. I have many copies of it in my house. It's the main version I use for everything I do. But it's still an interpretation. If I pick up this and I turn to Romans chapter 10, there is a verse that says, the law, uh, the Messiah is the goal to which the law aimed. If I pick up an NIV, or an NASB, 
it's going to say, Christ is the end of the law. Same Greek words, two very different interpretations. That's why these are interpretations and translations, not the divinely inspired word of God. So when we say that the word of God is divinely inspired and inerrant, which I do believe, we can only truly say that about the Torah scroll. As I noted before, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they found no significant deviations. In fact, of all scrolls and, uh, that were analyzed, all standard Jewish scrolls, they don't find any differences at all. And even when you get into kind of fringe Jewish communities, such as the Yemenite community, um, their scrolls are a little bit different. There are six letters that are different due to differences in the way their dialect of Hebrew spells versus the standard dialect of Hebrew spells. But this scroll is exactly the same as Moses transmitted down to us. Now, I will include, I will say that the New Covenant Greek manuscripts, if we're looking at them in original Greek, um, those are also very, very close to being perfect as well. Of the over 5,000 ancient Greek copies of the New Testament that there are existing, there's about a 95% congruence between them. And where they do deviate, it's generally uh, grammatical differences. So, our Torah is special because it's exactly what the finger of God wrote, exactly what was transmitted to Moses, to Moses, literally down to the exact letter. And I, I'll, I'll say again, to the size of the letter. Um, if you've ever been up here while Beth is showing you things, she will show you letters that are abnormally large or abnormally small. These are not mistakes. These are purposely put in there that have a, they convey a deeper meaning, a, 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 a higher level of meaning in the Torah scroll. And those differences are in all scrolls. So let's talk about the second reason why we honor our Torah the way we do. Now you may be thinking, well, if there are hundreds of thousands of Torah scrolls, all completely identical, and now with the advent of high-def photography and the internet, you can get, you can find the Torah scroll uh, in all its glory on any internet-connected device. So if there's hundreds of thousands of paper scrolls and and an unlimited amount of electronic renderings of the scrolls, why do we care about any single particular scroll? I mean, if the building burned down and our scroll was destroyed, we could, we could get another one. Any synagogue could get another one. So why do we care about any particular one? That question comes from people, us, we have never experienced a world that lacked Bibles and the Word of God. 
as I said, there are 100 Bibles in this building, and you can go to any store that sells general merchandise or books and buy one. You can find one in any hotel room. Um, we have never experienced a world where the Word of God was rare and hard to find. But throughout history, that hasn't always been the case. There have been many times where the Torah was almost lost. So I want to look at a couple of those times with you this morning. So let's turn to Malachim Beit, or 2 Kings, chapter 22, on page 429. I want to look at times for the Jewish people when the Torah scroll and the word of God was almost lost and when the people didn't have it. So that's Malachim Beit, or 2 Kings, chapter 22, on page 429. We're going to be starting right in verse 1. Yoshiyahu was eight years old when he began his reign. That's Josiah, King Josiah. And he ruled for 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yedidah, the daughter of Adiah from Batskat. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, living entirely in the manner of David, his ancestor, and turning away neither to the right nor to the left. In the 18th year of King Yoshiyahu, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Atzkalayu, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of Adonai after instructing him, go up to Hilkayu, the Kohen, Hagadol, and have him total the money that has been brought into the house of Adonai, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Then have them give it to the supervisors of the work being done on the house of Adonai. They, in turn, are to use it to pay the laborers in the house of Adonai to repair damaged places in the building. The carpenters, construction workers, and stonemasons are to purchase timber and work stone for doing the repairs on the building. However, they did not require an accounting from the supervisors given the money to spend because they dealt honestly. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. Stay where you are because we're going to pick it back up. But the, the temple has fallen into a major state of disrepair. Um, we are in this cycle of good king, bad idolatrous king, good king, bad idolatrous king, bad idolatrous king, bad idolatrous king, good king. So we've just ended one of those bad cycles where the king uh, cared nothing for God or his house, and his house has fallen into decline and disrepair. Now, they're repairing collapsed parts of the building. I mean, this is actually very damaged. This isn't just a new coat of paint. The Hebrew word they used for damaged places is bedek habayit. Bedek means fissure, rent, or breach. When you think of a breach, um, that is a hole in something. When you're on a ship and you have a hull breach, your ship is going to sink. 
When there is a breach in the wall of a castle, it's done for. The enemy is going to get in. So when we look at this, habait means the house. So when we see damaged places, what it actually in Hebrew is bedek habait. And what that means is breaches in the house. So we're not talking about cosmetic issues, but serious structural problems. Now this is important. I draw this out because this is important. This is a major construction project and it sets the stage for something truly remarkable that's gonna happen next. So let's continue on verse eight. Hilakayu, the Kohen Hagadol, said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the scroll of the Torah in the house of Adonai. Hilakayu gave the scroll to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went back to the king and gave the king this report. Your servants have poured out the money found in the house and handed it over to the people supervising the work in the house of Adonai. Shaphan the secretary also told the king, Hilakiah, the Kohen Agadol, gave me a scroll. Then Shaphan read it aloud before the king. After the king had heard what was written in the scroll of the Torah, he tore his clothes. He had never heard this before. He had never heard the Torah before. He was many years into his reign, and the scroll of God had not been presented to him. Then the king issued this order to Hilakayu the Kohen, Akim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Milkiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant. Go and counsel Adonai for me, for the people, and for all Yehuda in regard to what is written in this scroll which has been found. For Adonai must be furious at us, since our ancestors did not listen to the words written in this scroll and didn't do everything written there that concerns us. So I want to go back to earlier in, the, in the, the, the passage. It says, I have found the scroll of the Torah in the house of Adonai. Hilkiah found that. Now Rashi, no, Rashi noted that this singular scroll was found under a layer of stones where it had been purposely concealed since the time of the wicked king Ahaz who tried to burn all the Torah scrolls. So while this construction is going on, they, found, they find a, a secret chamber where they had hidden this scroll away. The rabbis say that this may very well have been the last complete Torah scroll in existence. Back in Devarim 31.9, remember, it said Moshe wrote down this Torah and gave it to the Kohanim, the descendants of Levi, who carried the ark with the covenant of Adonai and to all the leaders of Israel. What that verse means is that Moshe personally wrote 13 copies of the Torah, one for each of the 12 tribes and one for the Kohen Hagadol. This scroll that was found was very likely that scroll. 
hidden by the Kohen from Ahaz. And this hiding spot was passed down to Hilkiah, to, to Hilkiah or the secret location was found while rebuilding this while, while this rebuilding was occurring. Either way, it took a great king like Yoshiahu Josiah to coax this treasure from its hiding place. Either Hilkiah the high priest saw that King Josiah was a good man and he was worthy to have the scroll returned, or simply the king's renovation project was worthy enough to uncover the hiding space of this scroll. It, I like the symmetry of thinking that this may be uh, the copy that Moshe wrote for um, the, the Kohen Haggadol. How incredible would it be if the last copy of the Torah in existence was actually the very first one? That's something God would do just to prove a point on the eternal existence of his word. Now, whether you believe that this, this particular scroll that was found was penned by Moshe or not, it is very likely that this was the last copy there was at the time. The king who's commanded to make his own scroll had never seen this 18 years into his rule. He had never heard any of the laws. How close did we come to losing the Torah forever? We we probably can never know that. This is not the only time the Jewish people came perilously close to losing the Torah. So turn with me to Nehemiah or Nehemiah 8 on page 1140. So this is Nehemiah 8 in the complete Jewish Bible on page 1140. We're going to start with the last verse of chapter 7 actually. When the seventh month arrived, after the people of Israel had resettled in their towns, all the people gathered with one accord in the open space in front of the water gate and asked Ezra the Torah teacher to bring the scroll of the Torah of Moshe, which Adonai had commanded Israel. Ezra the Kohen brought the Torah before the assembly, which consisted of men, women, and all children old enough to understand it. It was the first day of the seventh month. Facing the open space in front of the water gate, he read from it to the men, the women, and the children who could understand from early morning until noon. And all the people listened attentively to the scroll of the Torah. Ezra the Torah teacher stood up on a wood platform, which they had made for the purpose. Beside him on his right side stood Madisiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasaya, while on his left were Pidiyah, Mishalel, Micaiah, Hashum, 
Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshulam. Ezra opened the scroll where all the people could see him. Because he was higher than all the people, when he opened it, all the people rose to their feet. This is why when we take the scroll out, we ask you to stand. Ezra blessed Adonai, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, as they lifted up their hands, bowed their heads, and fell prostrate before Adonai with their faces to the ground. The Levi'im, the Levi'im Yeshua, Benai, Severiah, Yamim, Akuv, Shabti, Hudaya, Masaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Yozvad, Hana, and Playa explained the Torah to the people while the people remained in their places. They read clearly from the scroll in the Torah of God, translated it, and enabled them to understand the sense of what was being read. Most of these people did not speak Hebrew. Um, the 70 years in exile now were in Babylon, their first language had become uh, Aramaic. Nehemiah, the Trishanta, Ezra the Kohen and the Torah teacher, and the Levi who taught all the people said to all the people, today is consecrated to Adonai your God. Don't be mournful, don't weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the Torah. They had the same response that King Josiah did when he heard it for the first time. Then he said to them, go eat rich food, drink sweet drinks, and said portions to those who can't provide for themselves. For today is consecrated to our Lord. Don't be sad because the joy of Adonai is your strength. In this way, the Leviim quieted the people as they said, be quiet, for today is holy. Don't be sad. Then the people went off to eat, drink, and send portions and celebrate because they had understood the words that had been proclaimed to them. So after the Babylonian exile, these people who returned to rebuild Jerusalem, they had lost the Torah. They had lost their culture. They even lost their language. But thanks to the dedication of Ezra and his Talmudin, it was restored to the people. The people wept just as King Yahu Josiah had when he had heard the law for the first time. And they realized what they had lost and how deficient they were without it. Incidentally, as we just read, they gathered on the first day of the seventh month. This is one of the reasons why the first day of the seventh month of Tishrei, Yom Teruah, as it's called in scripture, also became known as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, Jewish New Year. Because it was, it was at this point that the newly returned exiles truly started living their lives again in Jerusalem. It was a new beginning for them. During the time of the Maccabees, it happened again. First Maccabees uh, 156 says, the books of the law they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. That's Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. It was the pious 
Matthias and his son Judah the Hammer, the Maccabee, that restored the Torah to the Holy Temple. And again, after the Bar Kokhba revolt against the Romans, the Roman Emperor Hadrian was so enraged by the Jewish revolt that he forbade any observance of Jewish law or practices. Nevertheless, Hananiah ben Teradine, a great Torah teacher of the time, convened public assemblies and taught the Torah. His friend warned him that he should submit to Roman authorities, telling him, I should not be surprised if they burned you together with the scroll. Shortly after, Hananiah was arrested at a public assembly while teaching with a Torah scroll before him. Asked why he disregarded the imperial edict, he frankly answered, I do as my God commands me. He and his wife were sentenced to death. When he heard this, he is reported to have quoted Devarim 32.4. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. His wife quoted the next verse, a God of truth and without iniquity, <clears throat> just and right is he. So imagine that they knew the Torah so well that he's able to quote a verse and his wife can quote the very next verse after him. His daughter cited Jeremiah 32, 19, great in counsel and mighty in work for your eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. <clears throat> the Romans wrapped him in the scroll he was teaching from when he was arrested and they executed him by burning him. As the fire burned, he kept his eyes heavenward. And one of his disciples asked him what he saw. He answered, I see the parchment burning while the letters of the law soar upward. These events and many others like them throughout history instilled something at the root of the Jewish psyche, a need to honor the Torah scrolls and protect them at all cost. The Torah scroll and the synagogue Torah service became the bedrock of Jewish spiritual life. When somebody tries to take something from you over and over and over, it becomes all the more valuable. In 1942, the Holocaust was already well underway in Poland and in the conquered parts of Russia and Ukraine, but it had not yet come to Prague, Czechoslovakia. The curators and catalogers of the Central Jewish Museum collected and cataloged 1,564 scrolls of the law from towns already murdered by the Nazis. These are scrolls, each one of these represents a congregation that had already been murdered in its entirety by the Nazis. They labeled them with the community and congregation from which it came and hid them in the abandoned Milche synagogue outside Prague before being sent to Auschwitz themselves. After the war, they sat undisturbed and forgotten for 20 years 
until Soviet communists discovered them and sold them to a London art dealer. The art dealer sold them to a man who had them examined by Hebrew scholars and brought back to London. And this man eventually donated them to the Westminster Synagogue. The Westminster Synagogue set up a trust for them. And from there, they have been distributed to synagogues across the world. If you ever see a synagogue that says they have a Holocaust scroll, that's what these are. This is a scroll from a synagogue that was destroyed by the Nazis. Can we begin to understand why the scroll is so important? Why we give it a central space on the Bema? Why we give it the center of our worship service? When we lift up our Torah, we're joining 3,500 years of struggle to have that privilege. When we stand with the Torah, we're standing with the people who sacrificed to give it to us. We honor our scroll as if it was the very last one. We honor the Torah because its very existence is a miracle as great as any found in Scripture, that this scroll is here with us today. Shabbat Shalom.